Well, take that Bible and look over to the book of James. The book of James. We want to return there. We had Jim Rickard with us last week. And I want to return us to that tremendous passage in 19 through 22. In fact, as you're turning there, let me read that for you. And then we'll dive into the word of God. James says in 119, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let me pray and ask the Lord to direct our hearts. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear your glorious truth. Father, be at work in each of our lives, both individually and the life of our church corporately, And Father, we'll pray that as we sit under the word that you would give us the ability to receive with meekness the implanted word of God. Father, I pray that you aid us in that and we're dependent upon you. We ask now for your wisdom in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been saying all along that the theme of James is test of living faith. And as we work, we're working through that outline, that number one, faith is tested in life's trials. And we saw that in that opening section. Then secondly, in 13 through 18, faith was tested in our temptation. And we noted there that when we are tempted, we are being tempted very clearly there by our own lust. And we noted there that when tempted, we could never blame our temptation on God. For God himself cannot be tempted, therefore he cannot tempt anyone to sin. And so he told us there in James 1.16 to not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And then he went on to that final section there on the goodness and the good gifts that God brings. And now as we came into that third section, that faith is tested in hearing God's word, that's really the application to what has come before. And when we look at this section in 19 all the way through 27, it is the word of God that is binding the whole section together. And remember that we said that don't so much look at James as a different thought in chapter 1, that he's moving from, uh, from trials, then to temptation, then to the Word. Actually, he's all speaking, he's speaking of the same subject, that within life's trials, within temptations, your faith is going to be tested through that process in the hearing of the Word of God. Now, look again, just let me orient our mind back to the truth. Look at verse 18 where here he's talking about the nature of our salvation, of his own will, he brought us forth, and then that phrase, by the word of truth. So there it was the active agent was the word of God, the word of truth there was the agent that really created our salvation. It breathed life as we encountered the word of God. God used that word as an agent to cause us to be born again. Now, you'll note that he follows that theme. Look in verse 21, where it says in the middle there of 21, and receive with meekness 
the implanted word. And then if you glance down in verse 22, be doers of the word. If you glance down at verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, speaking of the scripture and its perfection. Look at verse 25 again. It's there after it says the perfect law, it's described as the law of liberty. In other words, that law that is perfect is a law that liberates us, if you will. If you glance all the way down into chapter 2 and verse 8, he tells us there, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture. And so he's talking about our obedience to the word of God. Look at verse nine. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. When we do that, then obviously the conviction comes to us. Verse 10, it says, for whoever keeps the whole law, uh, but fails in one point, has become accountable to all of it. And then finally, in verse 11, he says there, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And he says, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, so all the way through, he's speaking there about the word of God. And so here would be the transition. Having been brought forth, to faith through the word of God in verse 18. As we follow his argument now in James 1, 19 through 27, we are to be sustained daily by that living word. So the word is what saves us, but the word is what sanctifies us as well. And so as you tie that together, here would be his theme. Temptation is indeed powerful, okay? But there is help in the Word of God. And so we might ask the question, what means has God provided for the believer to be victorious? I mean, he really didn't really talk too much about how to get out of trial, how to get out of temptation. He was after our understanding. But now as he walks into this section, he's telling us how to be victorious in the midst of temptation. And the answer is the Word of God. And so here, as we follow this argument, the key to responding to trials, the key to resisting temptation is the transforming power of the word of God. And so follow this argument with me from 119 down through verse 27. James outlines for us three vital responses to God's word. We must hear God's word. We must receive God's word and we must obey God's word. And we begin that process last week where we said, number one, you must hear God's word with submission. Okay, and there he told us, look at verse 19. He said, be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. And so here it is. Here's how we hear God's word with submission. You need to be quick to hear it, slow to speak against it, and slow to anger. 
And remember, we said a couple weeks ago that those really aren't verses on communication. I suppose externally, maybe independently they are. But really in the context here, he's telling a group of believers in the midst of trial and in the throes of temptation that you, rather than blaming God, ought to blame yourself. It's your own lust that the only thing that ever comes from God is good and perfect gifts that flow down from above. And as he continues in that argument, he said, you, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a temptation, need to be quick to hear the word of God, slow to speak against God and speak against his word and slow to anger. In fact, look what James said there at the end of verse 20. He said, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we noted there that the reason he states that is in the context, some who have become discouraged by trials or discouraged by temptation can oftentimes blame God. And I took you through some biblical examples, and I took you to Cain in the Old Testament, how when God did not receive his offering, it said that Cain became angry. He was angry at something in his life and something that God did not receive. And so out of his anger, he rose up and killed his brother. And that was the pattern that we showed that, that sometimes people in the midst of a temptation actually become angry. Either at others, they become angry at God. We know that anger, according to Galatians 5, is a deed of the flesh. A deed of the flesh there is described as enmities, strife. It says jealousy, outburst of anger. And so when you're not walking in the Spirit, and if you respond wrong to a temptation, it can well become a a temptation to become angry at God. And James says, listen, you, you be careful that you're slow to speak and slow to be angry against the character of God. So what must you do? You must be quick to hear God's Word. Quick to hear God's word with submission we established. That in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a temptation, rather than running to other people, rather than talking out loud to everyone, he says make sure that you have an attitude that is submitting and hearing the word of God. Okay? But then he says secondly there, not only must you hear God's word with submission, and we'll pick it up here. Secondly, you must receive God's word with meekness. You must receive God's word with meekness. And he's creating a contrast here to the sinful attitude of anger. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so we are to receive his word with meekness. Let me just walk through this with you. And there are three steps given by James to receive God's word. First, you've got to hear it. Then secondly, you've got to receive it. And to receive that word, something's removed, okay? Then something... Is, needs to be responded to, and we'll walk through that. But look first, something must be removed. If you're going to hear his word in verse 19, something must be removed. Look at verse 21 again. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. There is a necessary preparation 
for hearing the word of God. And this is so important. This is so important for us in our Christian life, so important for our sanctification, and so important as you spend time counseling people. It is an exhortation. You say, what what is verse 21? It's an exhortation. It's a, I, I call it an imperative there. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, whenever the scripture writers use that phrase, put away all filthiness, it's the idea, literally, at one point, to just discard filthy clothes. In fact, in some writings, it just would speak of clothes that were filthy, and you are to to get rid of them. Obviously, James is taking that phrase in the Greek language to put away all filthiness, and he's changing it, as he does often in his book, and puts it in a metaphor, okay? So in a metaphor, it would mean to put aside or to take off, if you will, uh, and, and in the original, to take off clothing, but now it's used in a metaphor to take off sin, if you will. So the ideal of the word literally means to strip off, but as we apply it, you would say that you need to take that lifestyle that once enslaved you and take it off and discard it is the thought of the writer. We are to put away all filthiness. Now, this is very fascinating. Look, you see that word there in verse 21 in the ESV, it says put away, and then he uses that word filthiness. That word filthiness is the word, I'm not trying to be gross here, okay? It's the word that we get earwax from. It's what the word literally meant, okay? And you say, what is wax? What is earwax? It is a liquid secretion that keeps insects and debris from entering into our ear. And if you can make that jump there, James is driving home the truth that filthiness, sin, in our lives will keep us from hearing the Word of God. And so sin in our lives, much like wax in our ears, prevents the Word of God from reaching our hearts. In other words, if you're going to hear the Word of God in verse 19, okay, then you must remove something. And what you must remove is sin, okay? Now look again, and I'm just touching on this right here. Look at 21. He says to put away all filthiness, and then he uses this second phrase, and rampant wickedness. Very interesting phrase. If any of you are holding a King James Version, or if you remember, this is the verse that would say to put away filthiness and superfluidness of naughtiness. I'm not even quite sure what that is. Superfluidness of naughtiness was how the King James translated that phrase there, rampant wickedness. The idea, though, of the writer is that you not only need to discard the sin that once enslaved you, you need to put away the rampant wickedness. The ideal is an overflowing of evil is what it means, an overabundance of evil or wickedness. 
And as you begin to look at where that word is used in the New Testament, Romans 1.19, Colossians 3.8, it speaks of a desire to harm and even injure others. It's associated often with anger and associated often with malice. Now, if you just stepped back with me, and we're just introducing this, why does James describe this? Why is James, in verse 21, describing and speaking of filthiness and rampant wickedness? Well, you remember, we're in the context of temptation. We're in the context of being tempted towards sin. And what James wants to be clear is that God is not the one responsible for your sin. You are responsible for your sin. And what you must do with your sin is you've got to hear the word of God, okay? And then you must receive the word of God. But before you could receive the word of God, you need to cast away, put aside all sin, all filthiness, and all rampant wickedness. Now, just for a moment, do you see that phrase there in 21, put away all filthiness? This is a rich biblical principle. Look over in the book of Ephesians. Let me just show you a couple of places so that you can see that James is not the only one who spoke on this. I suppose it would be fair to say that James is the first one who spoke on this because this was the first New Testament book ever written. But certainly you've seen this principle before. And hang on with me here because this is going to be enlightening to us from the Word of God. Remember over in Ephesians chapter 4, we discussed Ephesians a little bit, did Ken today on the role and membership in the church. But you get to that sanctification element in chapter 4. And you remember what Paul said there. If you backed up and looked at 421 or 422, he tells you to put off your old self. Same idea. In other words, you are to lay aside sin here in James in order and in preparation to receive the word of God. But listen, as a believer, you have a responsibility, and I do, to cast off sin, to put it aside, to take it off like an old garment and to not walk into it. Look at verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then here Paul says, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But there James speaks of that. He tells you to lay aside or to put aside the old self. And so you're responsible there. Look over just to the right to the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3. There again. And that sanctification issue as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have a responsibility. You'll note that he said in Colossians 3, 5, to put to death, therefore... In other words, kill it. He says, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. But you see there, he exhorts us to put it to death. In other words, stick a fork in it. In other words, when you become a believer and you've been made a new creature and you've been given a new nature, listen, all the old things pass away, new things come. But listen, we still live in this carcass of sin. And you have a responsibility to take off, if you will, the old manner of life. Here in Colossians 3, 5, he says to put to death what is earthly in you. In other words, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and so forth. In other words, you have to make sure you're slain those things. But now, look at Colossians 3.8. He uses the same phrase. He, he Actually, he said in verse 6, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In, coming. in these you once walked when, when you were living in them. Verse 8, But now you must put them all what away. You got it. You're exhorted to discard these things, to put on the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But put them away. And what are you to put away? Verse 8, anger. And interesting, a connection with James. Slow, you know, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You're to put anger away. You're to put wrath away, 3.8. Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And so we have a responsibility. And James says here, putting aside all filthiness. If you will, go over to the book of Hebrews just for a moment. Let me show you this. And this is familiar to you. Hebrews is right before James, as you remember. But you know this text. But it's there again listed as the author of Hebrews. When he says, therefore, in 12.1, Hebrews 12.1, he said, since we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, you remember this phrase? What? Lay aside every weight and sin which, sink, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You are to lay aside every encumbrance of sin is the thought. I remember when I ran track in high school, I don't know if I told you that. I'd wear ankle weights all day at school. I don't know, five-pound ankle weights, so that by the time I got to the track meet, I felt very fast. And, uh, and you know, you'd kind of you'd lug those things, just put them in your... Do they still sell those? you put them in your pant leg, and you walk out, and then I'd get out, and I'd go out to the track. I'd have my sweats on, and then, uh, you know, when we get ready for the race, I would take those five-pound ankle weights off, and I just felt lighter. I felt freer. It would be like a baseball player on the ultimate team, the Dodgers, not the Giants. If you see them warming up on the side, sometimes the guy in, you know, in the bat, in, you know, who's on deck has the big donut around. Why? Because he's swinging it. But when he's going to go up to the plate and you're going to face a 95 mile an hour fastball, you'll take that donut off so that you can come through the batter's box. You're not going to run a race with those ankle weights. And what the scriptures are saying is, listen, as we get to the race of the Christian life, you've got to lay aside Hebrews 12, 1, every encumbrance that entangles you. You need to be able to be able to run this Christian life. 
Look over at one more, Romans 13, and then I'll bring us back to the point. But in Romans 13, and I I don't want to miss this with you, in Romans 13, in that classic text, after he's built all that sound doctrine and theology into us, in Romans chapter 13, in verse 12, what a great exhortation. It says, the night is gone, for the day is at hand, and now this. So then, let us, same phrasing, cast off the works of darkness, and then he adds the positive, and put on the armor of light. In other words, Paul comes to us because of the great doctrine that he's given to us in our life, we have a responsibility to cast off the works of darkness. Glance down at chapter 13 to verse 14, the very last verse of chapter 13. And then he tells us positively to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, positively, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. So he says, make no provision for the flesh. What's the provision of the flesh? Well, the flesh, as you know from Galatians 5, is immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. He says, make no provision. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, what you must do is we must starve the flesh, right? You just simply don't feed the flesh. And as you starve the flesh, the flesh will become weak. And then as you do that, you feed upon the Word of God. This is such an important principle in our Christian life. Maybe you've heard about the Eskimo, the Eskimo fishermen who came to town, into town every Saturday afternoon. And he always brought two dogs with him, if you can picture this. One was a white dog and the other was a black dog. And he taught them to fight at his command. And every Saturday in the town square, the people would gather and these two dogs would fight and the fishermen would take bets. And on one Saturday, the black dog would win. And on another Saturday, the next, the white dog would win. But what was interesting is the fishermen always won the bet, okay? And so his friends began to ask him how he did it. And he said, I starve one and I feed the other. And the one I feed is the one that wins because he is stronger. And I think that's the point here. What you feed in your Christian life is what's going to grow. If you feed the flesh, you're going to reap the deeds of the flesh. If you feed the spirit in the inner man, then you're going to grow. And so James says here, listen, you need to hear God's word. But watch this. He says before you can receive God's word, there is something that needs to be removed. Now, we don't talk about this a lot. And I'll tell you how this makes sense. And when I say talk about it is you've got to remove something. Now, I want to help you grow as a body. And I'll tell you how that works in in, in a moment. But you've got to remove, at this point, sin. You've got to remove filthiness. You've got to remove rampant wickedness. Because if you don't remove it, here it is. You'll never be able to receive the Word of God with meekness. 
Let me show you another text. Watch this. Look in 1 Peter, and I'll say something about that again. Look at, look at 1 Peter, and I, I, just right after the book of James. In 1 Peter, he's, he's using very similar language to what James has used. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 23, very similar, very important. He said, since you have been born again, just like in James 1.18, Peter says here, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through, he says the same thing, the living and abiding word of God. So he tells these believers, you have been born again through the agency, the living and abiding word of God. James says in 1.18 that you've been brought forth by the word of truth. Now follow his argument in 1.24. He says, all flesh is like the grass and all of its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, he's still on the word as well, is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Now watch this. Do you see this in 2.1? So, put away all, what? Malice and all deceits and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then you know this one in 2.2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow to and unto salvation. Now, let me make this connection. It's very important for each of us. Before, and and, and let me say this. You just think about people that you minister to. People who you counsel, okay? People who you spend time with. Let me just give this biblical principle, okay, that comes out of the scripture. Before God's word can be received, Sin must be removed. Sin must be renounced. So where'd you get that? Well, in James and right here in Peter. Before you will ever in 2-2 long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God, you and I have a responsibility and the people you ministered to have a responsibility. You say, well, what is it? To put away, there it is, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy. So putting aside sin is the condition for receiving the word of God. And one cannot long for the pure milk of the word unless they first put off malice, hypocrisy, and envy. And so let me put it this way. A desire to flee from filthiness and wickedness precedes an interest in the Word of God. You understand that? It's very, very, very important. You say, well, practically, Scott, what does that mean? Okay? I'm counseling somebody, not you, okay? I don't want you to be afraid. I love sitting with people. I'm just going back 25 years, okay? If I'm counseling someone and they want me to help them, here's just a little principle. Okay, I'll do that. Let's say say I'm talking to them. You're talking to your people. 
You just tell me before we start if you're willing to do everything the Word of God says. And if you in your own heart are willing to submit to what the Word of God says, and tell me before we begin, are you willing to deal with all the sin you see in your life? You say, well, Scott, you start there? (laughs) Yes, absolutely I start there. So, well, why do you start there? Because if I don't start there, I'm wasting my time. And what I mean by that is I could spend 10 sessions with someone, but if you're dealing with someone who's not willing to deal with the sin, then they're wasting your time and you're wasting theirs. You understand? In other words, as you get to this principle in the Word of God, there is an absolute hearing that is needed, but there's a reception to the Word. But before you could even receive the Word of God, you've got to remove sin. So let me give you an example. Let's say I'm talking to a guy. Not all guys struggle with this. Let me just throw this one out. Talking to a guy who's struggling with pornography. I could just keep talking to him and 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 talking to him. And And he talked to me and I've had many people come up and say, Scott, I'm spending a lot of time with this guy and he never repents. Listen, I'm, I'm just saying if someone's serious, if you're serious, if I'm serious, then before the word of God can be received with meekness in James, you have a responsibility to put aside all your sin and your malice and your envy and your filthiness and bring it to the table or we're just playing a game and we're just talking. Let's say high school guys, you're talking to a high school guy who's being impure with a girl or vice versa. Listen, you can show him the scripture, but until someone wants to cast off and lay aside and discard sin, then oftentimes we're just talking to people and they're not actually ever hearing the word of God. Let me just ask you this question. And I don't mean to be harsh and I don't even think I'm like preaching it at you. I'm trying to equip you. Have you ever wondered why some people never change or why there is never or little interest in the word of God? Here's why. You will never long for the pure milk of the word of God until you remove sin. And until you remove sin, it will dampen your love for the word of God. It will kill it. It will strain it. And we don't talk about that a lot because we're really nice Christian people. Listen, if you want to be a nice Christian man or woman, then in gentleness and in humility, if you're counseling someone, ask them this question first. Because until they're ready to part with their sin, they're never going to love and saturate themselves with the Word of God. You say, well, Scott, where's the principle? Right here in two one. Put away all malice. Put away all deceit. Put away all hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure milk of the word of God, that by it you may grow unto salvation. So listen, it is a failure to put away sin in all of its forms. This is why people don't love the word. Let me just say it this way to you. 
and I'm, I want to equip you. I'm not trying to be harsh. But there are a lot of people who love their sin more than they love God. And there's a, some people, as they get caught in it and want to live in it, they feel the weight of being convicted because they know what's right. But until they're ready to lay it aside, cast it off, get rid of that other woman, get rid of that other guy, then they're just, they're just playing games. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying I'm trying to get you to the counseling. When you work with people in our community, make sure you disciple them at this point. Make sure there's a truthfulness there. So what James is saying is, listen, before you could even become a doer of the word in 122, and before you could even receive the word of God with meekness, you've got to cast sin aside. Now look back just in James, just one thought here, just to be true, obviously, and faithful to the text. You'll note that he says, put away, do you see what James says in 21? All filthiness. Now, you say, I'm, in, I'm highlighting that. Yeah, because I think the other writers do. Peter says, putting aside all malice. Okay? Hebrews says, laying aside every encumbrance. So listen, God is never satisfied with partial obedience. And so we just can't compartmentalize our life. I think Wesley got it right when he said, refining fire Go through my heart. Illuminate my soul. Scatter thy life through every part and sanctify the whole. So first, something must be removed. Secondly, though, look back in the text. Something must be received. And you can see that there. He says, put away all filthiness and all rampant wickedness. And then he says, and receive with meekness the implanted word Now, James, again, is using a metaphor, is he not again? He's talking about receiving, and then he uses that phrase, the implanted word. He's using a metaphor of a farmer who plants a seed, and the seed in other scriptures in Matthew 13 is metaphorically understood that there the Lord compared God's word to seed and the human heart to the soil. And so the believer then, watch this, is to receive the word implanted. Do you see that? Now, you you think when you look at that, receive with meekness the implanted word, some people think that's salvation. But that's not salvation. You say, well, why is that not salvation? He just spoke about it in verse um, 18, didn't he? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth has already been planted into us. He's talking to us now in verse 21 as believers. And he's saying, receive with meekness the implanted word. This is not a command to the unconverted. It's to believers. The word has already been planted in you. You must now, as a believer, receive the word. And the word then not only is the agent that saved you, but the word also has been implanted in you. And it is to be an active, ongoing agent of spiritual transformation. In other words, that word that was sown in your heart at salvation must be appropriated and received for you to grow. I look at my neighbor's ranch 
out of my backyard. I moved in, and I think grapes were on the property. And in one day, I looked out my back porch, and all the grapes were gone. I don't know how they did it. Some machine just came in, you know, just took it. And then the next day, just all over 20 acres, perfect rows of some kind of fruit tree. Now, that farmer put that seed into the ground. But as you know, and I know, he did not just leave it there, did he? No, I see him out there. I see him out there with his truck. I see him out there watering. I see him out there spraying. I see him out there getting the weeds. I see cultivation taking place. The pump is behind my house, and I can hear the pump going. And you and I both know that the seed in the ground, apart from care, it wouldn't grow. And this is what James is saying here. You received that word when you got saved. He brought you forth in verse 18. But now as a believer, and make the the transition, in the midst of temptation, you and I need to be constantly under the care of the word of God is the thoughts. And so here, in like manner, the believers must receive the word. And I'm thinking about all these passages in the Gospels and in the Epistles, where in Luke 8, 13, it said, those are, it says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy. And remember, some people received it, but then they went away from it. But I'm thinking of the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, where it says they were no more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness. In other words, they were in Christ, but then they received it. I'm thinking in Thessalonians 1, 6, where Paul said, you received the word of God in much affliction. He told the Thessalonians in 2.13 that we thank God when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it as not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. So here the word, let me make the connection, is to be received. It could be received in your reading. It could be received in preaching. It could be received in listening to the word of God. And what James would say to you and I in the context of our temptation is to receive the word. But look how he puts it there. He says, receive with, and you see that, with meekness. Meekness. It's the ideal of humility. We know that meekness is a beatitude. We also know that it's a a fruit of the spirits. Jesus was meek. He was lowly of heart. You say, well, Scott, how do we receive the word of God with meekness? Well, it just means meekness is a teachable spirit to the word of God. It is to place yourself under the word of God. It is to listen to God. It is to put your ego down. Meekness is a willingness to submit to God. Do you see how this comes into context, into, into the context here? Rather than becoming angry with God, be like Job, put your hand over your mouth, and rather than arguing with God and arguing with his sovereignty and arguing with your trial and arguing with the lot that he dealt with you, you get underneath Be quick to hear his word. Be quick to receive his word. Be quick to receive it with a a meek heart. And that kind of heart, in contrast here, is clear of anger. 
It's clear of bitterness toward God, clear of bitterness towards his word. The thought here is we are to welcome and receive the word of God without resistance, without anger, to open your Bible in the morning, to sit underneath it, to have his teaching come into your heart and mind, to line up your will with his will, not your will with what you want your will to be, bending God's to yours. It's in, it's in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a temptation. Here's the path of victory. You be quick to hear and you receive this word. Vine says, he says, we accept. Here's what he says of meekness. We accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. You see the attitude here? Rather than arguing with God in the context when James said, let no man say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. James says, oh no, only good gifts. You get underneath them. You get under his word. You come with an attitude of meekness. In other words, you cannot sit in judgment on God and become angry. Rather, you let God's word sit in judgment over you. Listen, you know when we talk, I've used this expression the last couple weeks, when people are moving in their Christian life and the trial comes or the temptation comes and they jump track, and they're going, and they're just going, and they're going. You say, what happens there? I just think some people get angry. Some people don't like the lot that God gave them. They become angry in their hearts. They become angry even against the character of God or against his word. And as they begin to cultivate that attitude, they become grisly towards God, if you will. They, they kind of rub up against his word. And rather than coming in weakness and coming in meekness, they don't come at all. And so here you are not, the, James says, at liberty to argue with God regarding his goodness. Rather, receive the word with meekness. One writer put it this way. He said, James sees the living word as being planted in the heart of the believer. And what he urges is that we constantly seek to make the soil of our hearts receptive to it so that it can germinate, that it can produce godly fruit in our lives. He said, you cannot grow oak trees in window boxes, nor can we expect to be strong, productive Christians unless the word of God is allowed to sink its roots deeply into our hearts. Okay? And so we've got to let that have its effect in us. And I would just say to you as a church, this is why girls, high school Bible study tonight is in the book of Ephesians. This is why over 30 women came to the Bible study on Tuesday. We're focused on the Word of God. Reality that opens tonight explores that all of that is going to the reception and to the teaching of the Word of God because we want to let our hearts and lives be brought under it. You say, well, Scott, why is that so important? Look again at James 1.21. Here's why. He says there, This is a great text, and maybe you see it a little different and read it a little different. He says, receive that implanted word, which is able to, what? Save your souls. Now, you immediately read that, and you think, well, yeah, as you said, Scott, the agent of the word, the agent of your salvation is he uses the word of God. But have you ever looked at this a little different? That just Greek word save could mean different things and different context, and often we associate it with salvation, and rightfully so. In some passages, it does teach that. But I don't believe that's the focus here, because remember, he already said, did he not? 
In James 1.16, do not be deceived, my beloved, what? Brothers. He's talking to people who know, the, know Christ. Did he not say in 119, know this, my beloved, what? Brothers. He's talking to people who are in Christ. When it says receive the word which is able to deliver or save your souls, he's talking about from your trial. He's talking about from your temptation. He's talking about you've got yourself in a fix. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to get out of it. You don't even know how to, what way, what path you should choose. Here's what James is saying is you take that word that changed you in 118 and saved you. You receive it with meekness. And that word is able and God is able to save, to deliver your soul from that trial or temptation. So we come full circle. The whole key to the Christian life is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. But this is how people have victory over their sin and victory over their temptation. It is the transforming power of the word of God. So rather than arguing against him, get underneath God, be quick to hear his word, slow to speak against his word, slow to anger against God because your anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And then he says, you've got a responsibility. You've got to remove something, okay? You've got to remove sin. Then you've got to receive the word, which is able to receive that word with meekness. And then thirdly, when I say that something is restored... It's able to save your souls. And what's restored is your soul is delivered from the temptation itself. And so the word of God is so key. Does that make sense? Now you can look at that word saved. Sometimes it's used in past tense by grace. You have been what? Saved. Sometimes it's used in the present tense, like when it speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 1.18, when it talks about us who are being saved. So you got past tense, by grace you've been saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, you who are being saved. And then thirdly, we've got the final salvation where we shall be saved. Paul says in Romans 5.9, from the wrath to come. And so you've got a past event that you're saved from the penalty of sin. You've got a present reality that you're saved from the power of sin. You've got a future event where you'll be saved from the presence of sin. So then here back in 21, which one is it? Able to save your souls. And I believe he's talking about that middle one. He's talking about the present reality of being delivered from the power of temptation. So when faced with difficult trials... When tempted to doubt God, James calls us to be transformed by the humble acceptance of God's written word as our authority and guide in life's trials and temptations. Amen? Just think of that verse in Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, it says there, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The key is the word of God.